0: Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the Asset Allocator podcast, uh, digging into, of course, all things allocation, all things funds, and looking into what's going on in the DFM market. I'm Dave Baxter. I'm the funds editor at Sister Title Investors Chronicle. And today, it's me and Asset Allocator's very own, David Thorpe. David, how are you doing? Morning, Dave. Yeah, very, very good. Thank you. A lot has been happening
1: in the... um DFM, uh, Wealth Management Universe, over the last uh, couple of weeks. I think everybody just took January to, to hibernate and, and now are uh, out, out and about doing deals and, and uh, changing their allocation. And obviously, you know, lots have been happening in the market as well. January was, was a remarkably positive month and mm. February less so. I saw one, um, one bit of data that I saw was some parts of the uh, US T-bill market were up 3% at the end of January, and they're now back to neutral. So they yeah. gained 3% in January and lost 3% in February, roughly, which shows you the mm.
0: the volatility out there because that's the most liquid asset class of the, of the lot. It's insane, isn't it? I mean, I was looking at some kind of three-month figures, I think, and even just January figures for some of the kind of most beaten up funds of last year, and they've had enormous returns. Um, but um, I suppose everyone's wondering if it is just a, a kind of bear rally but speaking, I suppose uh, today we're going to kind of turn to something which you actually would hope would kind of tread water or stand still almost, which is once a sector that was the kind of darling of many an allocator and now is uh, somewhat out of favour, but had another test last year. Um, I'm talking, of course, about absolute return. You've been kind of touching on this in quite a few of the uh, kind of recent newsletters, you know, looking at some of the kind of trends with the big beasts. And I suppose kind of running some kind of data on, on the sector. What, what's kind of stood out to you on that front?
1: Absolutely. Well, as you say, the, uh, the, very, uh, the very clever people who do the data for us allocators, <laughs> so not me, basically had a look at the uh, correlation uh, levels between the different um, targeted absolute return funds out there as you mentioned it's a sector that was very very popular at one time with with fund buyers in 2019 2020 and 2021 however it was the overall worst uh, seller of the lot mm. which shows how far it's come you know everybody knows that the Gars fund in 2018 was sort of 20 billion in size they recently announced a, a strategic review And at the time of announcing the review, it was 1.2 billion in size, which shows just how far from favour that that sector has has fallen. So to the data, the average uh, targeted absolute return fund sector has a correlation to the MSCI World Index of 0.81, which many might say is a little bit high for for, for an equity thing. And that's on a a three year uh, time horizon of the absolute return funds that are owned by the dfms that we cover in the asset allocator database almost all of those funds have a lower correlation than the average mm. the exception to that is the church house 10x absolute return fund which is 0.82 correlated and that's the only one that is uh, correlated by more than the average and it's owned by four of the dfms we cover the next most correlated is Artemis Targeted Absolute Return Bond, mm. which is owned by three of the allocators we cover and has a correlation of 0.74. There are some that have a, a completely negative uh, correlation. One of those is um, BH Macro, which is um, yes. an investment trust that... Uh, basically invest in the hedge fund strategies of Brevan Howard uh, which is its its parent company that's a trust that was in the news recently because it it did a, a share split a 10 for 1 share split to increase liquidity and it has a, a correlation uh, which which as i say is 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 just about negative it's 0.005 of negative and it uh, recently, Quilter uh, announced that they'd bought it and that brought the total ownership to three DFMs of the ones that we cover. Mm. But the one with the least correlation, and I thought this is a fund I have to say I didn't know a lot about, but it, um, there's some interesting things going on there. Isn't uh, Newberger Bergman's Uncorrelated Strategies? Yeah. Now, it's, it's very interesting because um, it's owned by eight uh, DFMs, but also is the most popular alternative fund in our ESG database so it it obviously ticks some boxes there as well and it has a negative correlation to the global equity index of 0.43 which um which is the most most negative of any of the ones that that are uh, the most uncorrelated of any of the ones that we Mm. that we cover Uh, it's returned three percent over the past year which which obviously many people have bits of their investment portfolio they wish returned three (laughs) percent over the past year Um, and the average fund in the IA flexible investment sector in which it sits lost 8.4 percent i mean it's always tricky with these types of funds to to know what what how exactly do you uh you know do you do you define it but we we thought we'd uh we thought we'd run those those numbers and uh, that's that's what came back i'm sure many of our listeners have owned target and absolute return funds in the past or do now or might contemplate doing so in the future but as bond yields have risen Maybe they just think you know bonds are the thing that are uncorrelated mm. with equities, and do we do we need to own? Do we need to own any anything else? Let's that's, that's... yeah
0: yeah. I mean, I suppose it's kind of um, much like the. I suppose you can argue the is sixty forty dead conversation has now moved on to. I would argue 60-40 looks pretty healthy because bonds are cheap again and have yeah. have more room to um, act as as ballast in in theory. I suppose also it's interesting just be interesting to know which of these funds were caught out by kind of what when you talk about correlations were caught out by what happened in the bond market last year because you did you will have seen I suppose with bonds and equities falling in tandem that correlation will have risen and therefore they um it's not really doing the job you expect of it uh,
1: absolutely I mean certainly when you look at um for example the uh, Bergman fund that we that we mentioned that mm. uh, the the top holdings that it it publishes our old bond future positions. Please don't ask me what how those <laughs> work because there's no way I'm clever enough to know that. But that's <laughs> that's what they do. And Gars, I mean, it's it's largest position were were uh, were, were, were government bonds as well. Mm-hmm. So obviously, 2022 was not really a year to be to be owning government bonds. No, that's one of the um, one of the issues. If that if those funds. Just on bonds anyway, why not just buy a bond fund? Yeah. It might be how, how some, some allocators think about it. Especially as if you buy the bond fund, you can you can have the you can have the yield all, all to yourself if you if you want it.
0: And, and do you have any sense of how allocators now feel about absolute return? Because I, I remember, you know, we we've mentioned the fact that I suppose in the wake of the financial crash, absolute return was all the rage. But I, I remember even back in um, say we think of the sell-off at the back end of twenty eighteen. There were even then a few allocators were kind of losing faith with absolute return just because it's it's so... Um, say you look at funds like the old James Clooney fund at Jupiter. It's so idiosyncratic and it relies on uh, a manager getting call correct and also that call playing out in the market the way you'd expect, which it doesn't always do, whereas a you know a government bond or gold, I mean, it equally can be unpredictable, but they're perhaps a bit less unpredictable. Yeah,
1: indeed. As you say, a government bond or gold there, there is a kind of history of what's supposed to of how they're supposed to perform in certain mm. scenarios. maybe there isn't an absolute return i mean the the sense that I've had from from speaking to to some allocators is really they've just lost faith with the with the with the sector. Some of those funds had pretty ambitious drop lines some of them used to say deliver a positive return in on market conditions some uh Gars i think used to say. Uh, cash plus five mm. over a rolling three-year period. Those are pretty um, ambitious uh, claims to make, and I guess if you don't make them, allocators start to look elsewhere. The other thing that actually a number of people in the market mentioned was around um, their view was that to be properly uncorrelated, these funds had to engage should be engaging in in short selling of of equities, mm. and that actually a lot of absolute return funds have moved away from short selling equities, although. James Clooney's fund at Jupiter certainly did that. Um, but that if they don't do that, then it's really hard to see how they're, how they're uncorrelated to something because otherwise they're just taking long-only bets and everything that's long-only is correlated to something else.
0: It feels like you have to benefit from something going down, doesn't it? I mean, I suppose you can kind of have your currency plays and yep. your equally, you know, you mentioned your kind of convoluted bond futures and and so on. But yeah, of course that can blow up and we mentioned, you know, Clooney kind of, Gotten, gotten the wrong end of uh, the yes, the indeed. exuberance in US tech stocks and Tesla and and that. Um, absolutely
1: yes he um he yes, certainly that that happened um but the i i guess that's the that's the dilemma now for allocators out there is it it's simpler easier to explain i guess to client and probably lower fee to just buy the to buy the bond fund mm. and clip the clip the coupon if nothing else than by than by an absolute return fund, but on the other side of that ledger is what many absolute return fund investors would have said was, well, of course we didn't perform well in the QE era. The whole point of QE is to dampen volatility, and we do well when volatility is higher. Volatility is higher now, so this should mm. be this should be the time that absolute return funds do very well. But at the same time, a consequence of that higher volatility has been bond yield rising. And therefore, maybe you could do that instead. And I guess that's the
0: core argument around the future of absolute return funds. What's the kind of uptake now um, among um, model, model portfolio ranges of those big beasts that want to use to sort of dominate the, the bestseller charts, like the GARS and the GARS-esque funds at um, Aviva and that kind of thing?
1: Well, um, GARS, uh, GARS is now not owned by any of the DFMs uh, that we that we cover, the last DFM sold out of it. I think towards the end of twenty twenty two. Rather ironically, that was that was Aberdeen, um, on DFM mm. team, um. So now it's not owned by by any of them, and I'm not actually sure that and um, the mandates at Aviva or Invesco are particularly widely owned either. Maybe there's a, a question around around size because all three of those strategies got pretty got pretty big. Mm. And as ever in, in fund management, uh, can can a fund do the same, perform the same, allocate the same way when it gets larger relative to when it's smaller.
0: Yeah, yeah. And maybe eyes on it, maybe we're seeing some of the benefit of the um investment trust structure if you think of some of those names that you mentioned BH Macro and they've done sure. some they've done some fundraising in the last year successfully off the back of their um their really good 2022 I guess, you know yeah. they
1: can say their usp is most people most advised clients most fms can't invest directly wouldn't have you know the mm. ticket size to invest in the Brevin howard hedge fund is probably much larger than um than most clients could could have so at least as a wealth manager you could say to them well you know you're in a strategy that you wouldn't otherwise be able to get by owning the bh macro um, fund and because it's an investment trust there is that liquidity thing especially after the,
0: mm. the share split that lovely hedge fund exclusivity we all want it is there anything else you wanted to sort of point out on the uh absolute return front any the interesting trends from the
1: no I, space. I, I think um I think that's where that's where we're we're uh, that's where we're at and um, I do think it's it's fascinating that um ESG guys are are uh, allocating to that uh, Burger Bergman fund and um, maybe that's a future direction of travel because one of the challenges of course that ESG fund buyers have is that on the equity side it tends to be very heavily exposed to growth equities mm. um on the bond side i mean you can do stuff and bond funds are widely owned by by esg um investors but maybe they have an even greater need for diversification away from equities than does the general client and maybe that's why absolute return funds are are uh, gaining some traction in, in that universe.
0: That would make sense. Yeah, I mean this this week I saw some uh, some news of a, um, a European ESG energy ETF shutting basically because some tweaks to um, categories, but also I suppose that's just a very hard mandate to run. Um, yeah. So you're as you said you're kind of excluding some of your investment universe if you take a
1: uh, absolutely. And I mean, um, you know, if you own that, then then you really are owning a very growthy type because that you know whether BP in Shell or Total uh, are um, our growth stocks or not is something for cleverer people than me to decide. But the point (laughs) is, the point is you might not be able to own those in an ESG type fund. And if you don't, then you're owning renewable energy mandates and renewable energy mandates should be growth in that renewable energy is supposed to become a bigger part of the energy mix into the future, which means most of the earnings are in the future, which is the, the definition of a, a growth stock. So I guess that's, yeah. that's the challenge these guys are, are always going to have. And, you know, somebody coming in and going, here's a here's a, a fund full of bond futures, they go, well, that definitely won't perform the same way as a renewable <laughs> energy stock. Um, so it does have some correlation benefits there.
0: Yeah, yeah. And it will be interesting to see how those correlations um, shift out. Now, we've, we've had the... I suppose, massive shake-up of, of 2022's market. Turning to something else, some interesting news from the, the DFM space that perhaps we should cover. Aberdeen is uh, going to sell its um, discretionary fund management business.
1: Yeah, this is something that we uh, we just heard about at the time of, of recording, really. Mm. Um, I'm glad other people do the research for me. Um, <laughs> but what, what came back... Is yes, they're selling, but they seem to be selling the the bespoke DFM rather than the model portfolio unit. Yes, and that does seem to be a a reversal in the direction of travel. So many DFMs I I talk to now are very keen to emphasise the bespoke bit firstly, and the models bit secondly, which might be because the the bespoke bit they have a bit more chance to um, resist fee fee pressure from all of the new supply that's coming into the market but sir um so Aberdeen have sold that business to LGT which um I believe is the UK division of um, the Liechtenstein royal Family's family office for want of a for want of a better term and I I did go in to see their uh, UK CEO not that long ago and he, he certainly certainly is quite an ambitious person and and certainly determined to uh, to grow substantially from where they are now and the ultimate parent company are obviously um people who can be long term shareholders and and ride out market volatility. So it may well be that LGT become become bigger, bigger players in our, our universe. The other uh fun news that came in that might be relevant to that was the um Earth but not Latham. They Came into us and had a had a chat with us, and they they mentioned that they are. Um, I mean, our but not like them is a, is a private bank, but they mentioned that they're intending to be quite uh, competitive. They might say aggressive in terms of um, fees mm. in the in the model portfolio market, and they're intending to to come in and um, perhaps disrupt on 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 that side. So there's certainly a lot of industry news out there, and we we try to uh, keep abreast of that as well. The more players in the market, the more choice for clients.
0: It'll be interesting to see how that competition for bespoke business shapes up. Because, yeah, like you, I was I was slightly um, I was slightly puzzled by the kind of Aberdeen shift. Given you think that bespoke is where some of that profitability remains, and as you mentioned, there is enormous fee pressure that's really, to my eye, has really ramped up in the last two or three years in the in the NPS space. But yeah, it'll be interesting to see how DFMs do compete for that kind of bespoke business because perhaps that will just become a much more uh, even more so than it is now, a much more interesting area versus MPS given given where fees are going. Uh,
1: absolutely. And as I said, after the after the um as but not later, on now, their their fee for bespoke is um fifty-five basis points. Um and after that uh, article was published, uh, disclosing that a bespoke DFM provider rang me to check that the number was correct because <laughs> he thought 55 for bespoke was was very low. So it shows that perhaps maybe there is some fee pressure coming into bespoke, but I guess that's inevitable if everybody tries to be in bespoke rather than models, then the fee pressure will come across as well. But it is certainly interesting mm. that Aberdeen have made that um, that decision and done it that way, that way around.
0: I guess what I'd love to see, unfortunately, we can't really see it, but is is how those bespoke portfolios are shaping up as well. Because I suppose with so many model portfolios available and model portfolios going so cheap now, you must have to work even harder to try and justify that, that kind of fee. And, and maybe some of it is the kind of communication and the handholding and the, the sense of a, sure. you know, kind of fancy arrangement, all that sort of thing. But also mm-hmm. the portfolio itself must be very... As now interesting in, in how it's run.
1: Well you'd imagine that clients who can do bespoke have a somewhat larger portfolio of, of assets mm. and, and therefore perhaps their risk tolerance is, is different. Um, but of course that's gonna vary by client and if they've got a different risk tolerance then they're going to be in there's going to be more scope for them for the wealth manager to deviate from a sixty forty type type structure um and take more outsized um positions in in that way so th- that may be one of the one of the features of of those but certainly uh something to watch out for the other thing that i think is happening in, in mps a lot and that i hear a lot more about is um um in order to keep those fees as low as they can more mps providers are buying more passive and they're basically saying the active is the asset allocation and then they express that through buying yes passive funds and that way obviously the fee pressure can be a little bit um, lower and certainly in the market conditions that we've got now where the macro is so prominent, that probably does appeal to the clients as well. It must be more difficult... To say in the current climate, you know, we don't pay attention to the macro and we're, we're bottom up fund selectors or something that must be more difficult when the world is in
0: such flux. I also feel like there's more fee screws in there when markets are, um, are tanking. I've always, I don't know, I don't know where from, but always have this sense that, you know, people can, if you're thinking 2020, 2021, you know, if someone's making an enormous return, probably don't. Probably care, it's it's easier to care less about kind of how many bips you're paying and so on. Yeah, some some interesting um, points. Definitely worth watching, I suppose, the absolute return space. And we will be keeping an eye on um, where DFMs lean in that respect. But uh, David, thanks for taking the time to to catch up. And uh, thank you for listening.